Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. I'm here in Manenberg, uh, which is a township of uh, Cape Town, with Pete Portal, who's one of the community pioneers and is also on the core team of Tree of Life. And uh, this is a ministry working with uh, gang-involved people, men and women, um, youth as well. And he's been here with his wife, Sarah, for 14 years. He's from the UK, from London. And um, I'm going to be interviewing him about just what does it mean to be a disciple and, and you know, like making disciples. And so, Pete, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, why you came here and what you're, what you're about? Yeah, thanks, Bob. I, I'm from London, as you say. I moved to Cape Town, age 23. Um, I had been working in kids TV in London, um, and it was the thing that I felt God had called me to, but it was after going on a short-term mission trip as a university student for six weeks to Cape Town in 2007 that I just sensed God challenging me to respond to the injustices and division that I saw. Um, you know, we had been working in a prison uh, with prison gangsters and hearing stories of trauma and generational injustice, poverty, structural um, injustice, all of that sort of thing. And we were in our early 20s, kind of unwittingly taking on all the trauma of all these guys in prison who we had come here to share the gospel with, you know, as if like we had the answers and they were just, they had all the needs type thing. So it was a problematic trip in many levels. And actually, I don't think we achieved much of lasting worth, except that God deposited his heart for a city and a nation um, into me. And, you know, I went back to London. I sort of moaned and groaned to anyone who would listen about all the issues uh, in Cape Town, as if I was the first person to ever have put a finger on such things and no one cared, no reason why they should. You know, it was my responsibility to respond. Um, so at the beginning of 2009, age uh, yeah, age 24, I moved back to Cape Town and a year later, uh, after discovering kind of the complexities of ministry and mission in Cape Town, which is the most racially segregated city in South Africa, which is the most economically unequal country on earth, and realized that, you know, commuting into townships and handing out a combination of food, hugs and opinions wasn't going to cut it. And that was when I decided, okay, if, if Jesus lived in Cape Town today, from what we're told about Nazareth, maybe he would live in Manenberg. Because we hear all the time, Manenberg, can anything good come out of Manenberg? And so I just thought, well, let me, let me do an experiment. Let me see if God really does have the power to free people and if the gospel really is true. And here I am. 13, 14 years later, still doing it. Wow. Hey, um, so just for our listeners who don't know about South Africa and the apartheid system, can you give just a quick like summary of just what are townships and, and you know, why what what's Manenberg about and how is it different from sort of other places in Cape Town? Yeah. 
Yeah, so I always say Manenberg shouldn't exist. Manenberg was created by the spirit of white supremacy. Um, so in 1948, the apartheid government were officially uh, sworn into South Africa. I mean, but obviously white supremacy and division and racism and injustice had been uh, going on for centuries prior with the European settlers and all the rest of it. Um, but from 1948 until 1994, uh, there was a yeah, legalized um, uh, regime called apartheid, which is Afrikaans for separateness or apartness. And that was based on, honestly, like just heretical reading of scripture. You know, there's, there's no greater uh, argument for good biblical teaching than when you look at the history of South Africa. And apartheid was at its roots a theological project. Um, and that was basically that uh, people of different races and ethnicities should uh, develop and live separate from each other. But more than that, that white is right and that anyone of colour was um, subjugated to poverty and injustice. And so Manenberg was built in the 60s by this regime after the homes of those deemed non-white in the city centre were bulldozed, uh, people were forcibly removed and given a two-bedroom unit with you know, no hot water in, on the peripheries of the city. Um, families were deliberately um, split up. So you, 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 some people even returned from work one day to see their house had been bulldozed and their family was on the back of a truck being transported like cattle with all their belongings and they just had to jump on. And their, that was their fate seal. They would move to places like Manabur. And of course, the fairly inevitable, what's the word, kind of outworking of this is a collective trauma response whereby if your turf has been violated by those in power you will really quite inevitably defend your turf now with your life from the violation of the other and so what we saw um, develop in Malenberg over the last decades is uh, uh, that it's prevalent, uh, gang, gang life and gangsterism and uh, violent shootouts are now prevalent as a collective trauma response, I think, to the injustices of 1960s apartheid forced removals. There's so much more to say on that, obviously, but that's some of how Manenberg uh, was built and conceived and how some of the social scene we see today uh, emerged. So you're a white Brit and your wife is a white South African and you guys are in, you, you felt called into this colored community. Like, What are some of the challenges of, of just coming in like that? Um, you know, what are some of the things, the, the big challenges you faced and sort of how have you found, uh, what are some of the keys that you found that have, that have, that have given you access to uh, the ministry that is in my view, just really flourishing um, in the days that we've been here. We've been really moved by just the, the beautiful folks that are part of your community. Um, those of mixed racial heritage, um, it's a term that doesn't translate well into any other culture. Um, but um, yeah, move, moving to Manenberg, I mean, I always say the journey for Sarah, my wife, 
who, as you pointed out, is white and grew up in Cape Town in the kind of leafy suburbs and went to some of the best schools in the city. Um, the journey for her, 20 minutes down the road to Manenberg, was a much longer and rockier journey than it was for me 10,000 kilometers north in the UK. Such is the kind of brainwashing and spirit of fear that prevails. You know, if, if, if you come, if we were told things like, um, well, if you move to Manenberg and this and that happens, you know, bad things happen, then you, you brought it on yourself. We, we told you so. That's, that's the kind of prevailing narrative. I mean, Sarah was on her way when we met to go to the DRC, to go to Congo, to work with child soldiers and youth in conflict after her um, university degree. And I said, we'll come to Manenberg and see uh, child soldiers in, in Cape Town. And she, she readily admits that, you know, there was a greater fear associated for her growing up as a white South African uh, in coming to Manenberg than there was in going to Goma in the DRC to work with child soldiers. So, I mean, I don't, I, you know, I don't know if there are any keys that we learnt except that we learnt about a million ways how not to do things. We learned through trial and error. Um, but, you know, for, for me as an opinionated, slightly sort of cynically leaning Brit, you know, I learned to shut up. And for the first year that I was um, coming into Manenberg with a, uh, a friend who grew up here, a dear friend called Jono, we used to prayer walk twice a week for a couple of hours. So over the course of the year, we would, we prayer walked for hundreds of hours. And when people said to us, what are you doing here? Hey, Whitey, back Mark Davidson, means like, like, what are you doing here? Jono told us, you just, just respond, or Slupin, but we're just walking and praying. And we, we didn't ever go up to anybody unless they called us over so that they were initiating conversation. We weren't the outsiders coming in and trying to feed or share good news with people. We would just walk and pray. And so the ministry of presence and just learning, just, you know, learning uh, when the bins go out, the, when the mosque call to prayer is, um, what are the different gang territories and turf lines? What are the different shops people go to? What, you know, what's the, what's the life of the community? Um, and, and really just learning and, and being quiet, as you say. And then also just reading scripture together and contextualizing it through reading it with young men and women who had a very different reading of certain things to me. And again, realizing, okay, uh, scripture speaks into local environment, but local environment also speaks into scripture. And that was honestly, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that was a new concept for me. Um, other things that, um, we, we, we learned was, um, you know, we, we were working with gang members and drug addicts and we were working nine to five. Uh, we had a daily program where we would do, you know, sessions on this and that and all the rest of it. And it took us quite a long time, honestly, to learn that gangs and drugs don't operate on a nine to five schedule. So we would go back home, uh, out of Manenberg, and then all the stuff would, you know, uh, 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 things would descend into chaos with yet some of the people we were working with. We would drive into Manenberg, try and sort things out, and then drive back out again. And we realized quite quickly we needed to be praying, you know, 
what a radical idea for a Christian project. You know, at the time we were an NGO. So we started praying together. And then we realized these young men and women, actually, if we're, even if they're coming to faith, and we saw some wonderful stories of people being filled with the Holy Spirit, receiving the gift of tongues, coming off heroin painlessly through baptism of the Holy Spirit. But then we would drop them back home at their mother's house who was dealing heroin for one of the gangs. And almost like lighting a match in a gale, you know, for a split second that match would fire and then it would just be snuffed out over and over again. And so when we started praying for safe places for these people to live and be, God challenged us and just said, well, maybe that you're the answer to that prayer. So we began sharing our homes with such people. And then when, if you're sharing homes with recovering addicts, you really need a very clear structure. So we would start with prayer and worship and all the rest of it. And then we began to realize we need to share our money with each other because, you know, if someone's looking after more mouths to feed, they needed resources. And then we would gather together and we would worship. Um, and then we would, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so after a few years, we, came to the slightly inconvenient realization that we had become the very thing we had tried not to be, which was a church, a church community. And I remember saying to somebody a few years ago, you know, because Manaburg is a community of 80,000 people and it's got about 300 churches on every corner and everyone's a pastor, you know. And uh, I said to this friend, I'm a bit embarrassed because I think the last thing Manaburg needs more of is churches. And he replied, well, sure, but if you can firstly make sure you're not stealing other people's Christians, which we kind of laugh at wryly, but actually that is a thing, right? We call it church growth and God's blessing our community, but actually just stolen Christians from down the road. He said, as long as you can make sure you're not stealing other people's Christians and you're making a measurable difference in the lives of the poor, the oppressed and the vulnerable, those who incidentally many of the churches here shut their doors to, really, I think, out of trauma. And if you can um, see the presence of God show up in these people's lives and lead them to faith and disciple them and see them transformed, it feels like, well, every community needs more of that. Don't get caught up on the C word, you know? Um, so that's kind of how things emerged, kind of back to front. Um, but it was a slow burn. It came from listening, it came from walking the land, it came from intercession, it came from relationship, it came from a belligerence that we wouldn't target the, quote, good kids in the bad area, but would go after the very people that the church had closed its doors to, and pivotally put them at the centre of covenant community, i.e. not just tolerate them on the edges, but actually exist for these people. Um, and then kind of just see what happened. The challenges, of course, are many. When I first moved into Marienburg with a 19-year-old heroin addict, um, I was accused of being an undercover cop. Somebody called me the White Sangorma. They thought I was a witch doctor. Uh, others thought that I was this guy's pimp, that I was pimping him out. Others thought I was a drug dealer uh, or a reporter or a journalist. And so, you know, the the... We've all got our presuppositions about, quote, people not like us, right? And I had my own towards the community and the community had its own towards me. But the, the only way that can be clarified and cleared up is over years and years, people see you doing the same things. And I think the one word that I've learned 
that really is everything is the word congruence. You are your ministry. And so if what you're saying with your words is not matched with your life, then people will very quickly, uh, your credibility will go in a second. But if people can see that what you're saying with your words, you are matching with your life, then that congruence for me was probably the greatest key for uh, doors opening, relationships forming, and credibility cultivating in that way. Wow, so um, that's really inspiring. Can you talk a little bit about Jesus and, um, you know, what is it about him and um, his teachings? Are there key sort of scriptures or ideas that have been part of the DNA um, for you since the beginning that haven't gone away? That, or are there other new things, new aspects about Jesus or his teachings that have kind of been forefronted? Um, you know, like, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the Isaiah 61 and 62 have been huge for us. The, the home that we run for young men coming out of gangs and drugs is called Crew 62, based on uh, the French word Crew, C-R-U, meaning sort of vintage. And uh, 62 coming from Isaiah 62, being called by a new name. But... Isaiah 61, equally, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, etc., etc. And the, the, it, it talks about me, on me, to do this, 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 and this. And I think it's verse four or five that then talks about, then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the places not devastated. And it's a subtle shift in, um, the, in the focus but for me, this was pivotal in thinking, okay, look, you know, I think we can oversteer as white people out of guilt or out of sometimes a woke ideology and think, oh, no, you know, we mustn't talk about our personal calling or whatever. We must just shut up and, you know, but like each one of us has a calling that Jesus has got for us. And so there is an I to it, but it can't end there. It's got to go to they, those whom are a planting of uh, uh, of splendor, the Lord's favor, uh, Lord's splendor, a planting of, for God's glory. They will be the ones who will rebuild the ancient ruins. But then, equally, if I look at the life of Jesus and the Beatitudes, we can't ignore that his definition of blessed is so opposite and antithetical to anything we'll be told in mainstream media, mainstream culture. Blessed are you. If you're a poor of spirit, blessed if you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And the gift that Manenberg is for me is that it keeps me poor in spirit. It keeps me hungry and thirsting for righteousness. It keeps me uh, more pure in heart than I otherwise would be, uh, promising that I will see God. And we see God in the faces of those the world say belong in jail. And we're like, well, Jesus kind of tells us they belong in family. And we see God as we are um, accused falsely of this or that or misunderstood. And we, a, a massive verse for me has been Philippians 3.10 that talks about the power. I want to know Christ firstly. I want to know Christ. That's all there is for us. We never get beyond knowing Christ in his presence. And then secondly, the power of his resurrection. 
We want this dunamis and resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead to see lives transformed, but also the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. We want to know Jesus through the redemption of suffering, but also the lament that suffering brings. And we've experienced his presence in that so deeply. And I think our frustration is we see a church on the one hand going after revival, the resurrection power, and the church on the other side going after the activism of sharing in his sufferings. And we very rarely see that false dichotomy lived in a kind of coherent, holistic life. And so that's what we long for. We long to see resurrection power and a fellowship of sharing in his sufferings coming together. And we believe, because we've seen it, just little, little tiny bits of light shining through. Almost like, you know, um, I had an image once of when you're in a plane, an aeroplane, it's all dark, all the, all the window shades are down, and then you just lift it up a tiny bit, and light floods in and affects the whole cabin. We've seen that happen, just the first fruits of the kingdom breaking through, through resurrection power and participatory suffering, bringing fellowship with Jesus. And that is everything for us. So we at Terminoeva, we talk about the interface between what we call word, spirit, street, or, or justice. Mm. And you just talked about that, um, you know, that dichotomy between the revivalists, you know, the people that are, um, you know, maybe the Holy Spirit, the charismatic side of the church, um, and the social justice side of the church. What do you, what do you see is, um, how do you see these worlds coming together of, uh, of word, spirit, street, you know, prayer, you know, contemplation, like, why do we need that fullness in a place like Manberg? Yeah, well, because I think a lot of the teaching I've seen and come across it recently of this sort of um, revitalization of some of the spiritual discipline stuff and contemplative spirituality, um, you know, if we're talking, you know, I sometimes hear people talking about, oh, we need digital Sabbaths. We need to turn off our phones and be present. I'm like, cool. But if I haven't got a phone, if I can't afford data, are you saying that the only way I can access God through a digital Sabbath is by having an iPad? That's a very strange theology. Or we talk about fasting, which is a great thing to do. But if I'm hustling for food every day and bins and have no money for food to feed my family, then I'm fasting the entire time. We talk about solitude and I think of families of 12 to 15 people living in tiny little apartheid built blocks or shacks with no running water. I think, what does solitude look like there? Or we talk about tithing and giving to the church. And I think, my goodness, you know, if I'm just begging at the lights, what is tithing? You know, so I think I think the 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 in the increased interest today I see, particularly in my generation of millennials, for a contemplative spirituality and a rule of life is absolutely to be encouraged. But I think we need to recognize that a lot of the time that teaching is coming out of white, urban or suburban Western city centers. And that needs to be able to be applied to other contexts. I think so often um, the revival culture is me, my God, my destiny, my words of knowledge, my prophetic anointing, and my manifestations on the floor of a thick carpet in the suburbs where everybody looks and talks like me. 
on the one hand. And yet on the other hand, I look at the activist church in South Africa, but around the world, and I think, oh, I long for you guys to experience the, 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 the supernatural empowering of the Holy Spirit. Because what I see is a, so often can be a tie of cynicism with the church, because God's not cynical with the church. So we are obviously in error somewhere there. Um, an inability or an unwillingness to deal with brokenness and personal dysfunction that the Holy Spirit and the inner healing movement could really minister into. Um, and yeah, so I think I've completely forgotten your question now, but I think these contemplative, revivalist, activist spiritualities and theologies need to come together. And I, if I'm honest, what I've noticed is that people are crying out and looking for exemplars of such a coherent and integrated spirituality. And that's, you know, I can't claim that that is us, but we're certainly going after that. So you are, are working on a book on, on ministry um, and in just how success, you know, is, um, you know, your notions and Western understandings of success are, are sort of being turned upside down. Can you talk a little bit about what success looks like and what it doesn't look like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So the, the new book that I'm writing will be out in October and it's going to be called how to be unsuccessful, an unlikely guide to human flourishing. And the premise of it really is that, you know, I was going to say sort of the world, but like everyone, Christians included, are turning to self-help and mindfulness and things that are not necessarily evil in and of themselves, but are utterly deficient for the kind of keys to how to live a good life if we're saying that we're citizens of the kingdom. And so I thought, well, let me write a book that reorientates the reader's mindset towards what success looks like, namely what Jesus Christ told us constitutes success. Now, he would never use that word, particularly success, right? But um, where success ultimately is faithfulness to God's calling. Success is not good ideas, not replicable models, not celebrity endorsements, not millions of dollars of funding. Um, success is a faithfulness to the crucified Christ and the downward trajectory that he followed for us to emulate, however that looks for us. Um, and so success also looks like uh, giving our pain to the Holy Spirit to transform rather than transferring it onto those around us. Success looks like allowing God to waste my life, quote unquote, if I've got professional theological qualifications. Will I give them to God for him to use or not? Success looks like being a faithful presence and a faithful witness in the culture wars we see raging all around us and having a theological foundation for how to engage in the public sphere. And pivotally, success looks like going after depth rather than noise as what is true influence. So the church is very noisy, quite self-congratulatory. One of my favorite quotes that I read recently is that the church is a little bit like a swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. And so what does it mean for us to be swimming in the deep end, doing the stuff that Jesus called us to do without worrying about trying to influence the world through 
cheap noise and a sound bite kind of TikTok spirituality. And these are the things we're trying to learn here in Manonville. That, you know, we once had a funder chatting to Sarah and I, and we often get this question dealt with us. Well, so what's your success rate? Tell us about your success rate with the young guys who come and live with you. Now we could quantify success in a whole bunch of different ways. We could say, well, we've had about 60 to 70 young men come and live with us over the last eight years. Uh, all of whom, apart from two, have made verbal commitments to follow Jesus. So then our, our success rate's probably in the 90%, pretty good. Or we could say, we've got about 10% of them still following Jesus and still off drugs. So is that our success rate? Or um, it costs 7,000 rand a month to keep one of the young men in the home we run for gang gangsters and addicts. When you consider that it's 11,000 rand a month to keep them in prison, you could say, well, you're saving a good amount of money from something quite restorative. Is that success? But Sarah modeled it in a, a much different way. She said, listen, we've never been asked to get anybody off drugs or leave a gang. We couldn't do that if we tried. All that we felt was that God asked us to move into a community, buy a home, and open it as a habitation for his Holy Spirit, where young men seeking help coming out of gangs and drugs will be accepted, loved, where they will hear the message of Jesus, and where, if they choose to, we will walk with them for the rest of their lives. And we've done that. So she said, we're 100% successful. And I remember thinking, sitting there, sweating, thinking, how is she going to get out of this? And she absolutely nailed it. And so that has become our life message, really. So um, can you talk a little bit about spiritual warfare? Like um, we just came in, um, our team of uh, Richard and Colleen. Colleen's a local uh, person from Cape Town and Richard's from Zimbabwe, a pastor. And then Andreas uh, from Sweden. We were just all up in Zambia doing a conference. And then we came in here and, uh, and we just finished our Certificate in Transformational Ministry at the Margins, our Module 1. Just prior to this, there were a lot of things that you guys experienced in terms of, uh, I guess, just spiritual resistance, you might want to call it. And then last night, just right after we finished this whole training, three people are killed in the community. Like, is that kind of typical? Do you expect uh, that kind of thing? And talk a little bit about spiritual warfare. I don't know. I know much about it, apart from that it exists and that it is fairly depressingly predictable in retrospect. So we run things called 24-7 prayer weeks uh, every quarter. So that's praying night and day for 168 hours as a community. Um, we'll have different themes for each week. Sometimes it'll be intercession, sometimes it'll be contemplation, other times it'll be, you know, whatever. Um, and on a regular basis, we see gang fight either start at the beginning of these weeks or stop literally right at the end of these weeks. We also see those who are organizing these weeks. Um, I, I think about, you know, um, attacks on certain colleagues and friends who are part of organizing these weeks, you know, the week that it, that it happened. Um, at the beginning of this week of CTMM, like uh, um, some key leaders and dear friends in Tree of Life uh, were broken into the night before we started. So they missed two days of the course. And then literally an hour after the course finished, uh, as you mentioned, three people were killed, one of whom was stoned uh, to death outside this same couple's home. 
Um, if I think of uh, the story of a young man called Marwan who came out of Islam gangs and heroin, came lived with us for 18 months, got baptized in the spirit through worship, completely delivered of all his heroin pains. He uh, tragically died in a car crash. But the day we released a kind of testimony film about his life, because we filmed his entire testimony, uh, I was showing it in London, um, and that evening, the place I was staying, the car got broken into. My home in Manenburg, where Sarah was, uh, got ransacked by a couple of guys stealing all uh, the stuff. Uh, and then the home in which the film was edited had all the editing equipment stolen uh, as well. And, you know, so I think when we begin to look at things like Satan can't create, um, but he can warp and bastardize and he can jump on things. And so we've come to see it almost as Satan's greatest compliment to us. When that break-in happened on Sunday night last week before the course that you were leading, I thought, oh yeah, I recognize this. I recognize this. Ground will be gained this week. Does that mean that has to happen? And we have this sort of faithless theology that, you know, no, of course not. But we've come to see that when things of spiritual weightiness and significance are going on in people's lives, Satan will try and steal, kill and destroy. And it's actually clockwork. Um, so there's plenty more stuff I could say, I suppose, on that, but I'm still working out, I think, what I think around spiritual warfare. But what I think currently is that it's real, it's directly leveled at people uh, and in certain situations, and it's often at times of increased kingdom breakthrough. That's what we see. So I have a question just kind of coming up in, as you're sharing um, about, you know how Jesus, after he heals people, he says, uh, don't tell anyone. Mm. Do you, uh, you ever think about that as, a, as like Jesus wanting to keep things under the radar, almost like to keep someone from being targeted? Like, and, and like, how do you as someone that needs funding, you know, like, how do you deal with just telling testimonies? Like, uh, because in a way, if we're going to share these testimonies, we're, we're putting, you know, we're drawing attention, I guess, to the, to the work of God in a public way. Yeah. But is that also putting people at, at, in harm's way? Like, what's the, how, how do you bear witness to what the kingdom of God, how the kingdom of God is breaking in, uh, in a way where you're not, and there's another question, maybe you're not using people's stories in a way to fundraise, to make money for the organization, which is understandable if you were, if you, in a way, if you, mm. even if you were judged that way, you know, we have to, we need donors, we need support. You need that in order to be able to fun function, keep your doors open, right? You have anything to say, any insights about just that? For sure. I think the Lord, the Lord spoke to me probably about 10 years ago, um, warning me about prostituting a move of God for cash prostituting essentially the lives of people who have come to know Jesus for money. Um, and that is a huge danger. But then as time went on and I personally began to deal with my own insecurities around funding or money and that sort of thing, I began to realize, you know what? 
when I go to churches or organisations, particularly in the north and in the west, what we're bringing is a kingdom gift of stories and of lives transformed in a place where people say it's impossible. We go to agitate, we go to raise faith, we go to challenge, um, and we go to call people higher. And that's a gift to the Western church that I've begun to see that we in Manenberg and the Tree of Life can be. And we go without any expectations or entitlements. We don't ever fundraise. We tell people who ask what our needs are, but we won't fundraise. And we've seen God provide for the last 14 years. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, getting, for example, young Christians to stand up on stages or whatever and tell, you know, uh, stories that sound kind of like exotic stories from the mission field or whatever on so many levels is problematic, not only for them personally, but also just conceptually the idea that, you know, these sorts of things go on in those sorts of areas and not in places like London or, you know, uh, uh, Western cities. Um, and I think sometimes it can be an inherently disempowering message to the Western church that we talk about frontline ministry. And these are stories from the front line. It's like, no, no, you know, I was chatting to a Somali shop owner a few years ago during gang fight. I nipped out of our office to go and get some milk and they'd been shooting on the street. And I said to him, how are you doing? You know, this is a, this is an intense environment. Are you okay? Can we pray for you? He said, my friend, I'm from Mogadishu. Manenberg is pieces of cake, he said. And I got the milk and ran back and I thought, he's right. If I, if I, if I came from Mogadishu, Manenberg would be a walk in the park. But because I'm from London, Manenberg seems really intense. So everything's relative. <laughs> so um, final question. Um, what does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? And um, can you just share your own, you know, kind of where you're at with that now? What it means is that the hope is, and the most real hope is that if I don't give up, I win. That he walks with me, that he knows and doesn't judge anything about me. That he calls me to be more like him daily. That as a parent to an energetic toddler, frustrated with my own personal devotional life in this season, that he is right there cheering me on and not tut tutting. It means that he lovingly uh, reveals to me parts of myself that are nowhere near looking like him just yet and works away on them. It means that anything I give to him that causes pain or desolation can be redeemed into something that can bring joy. It means I have a ultimate purpose to which my life is oriented. It means that whilst I'm not where I want to be, I'm not where I was. And it means that I can look to the future with confident hope because I look to the past with gratitude of his testimonies.
it means that I learn from him or I can learn from him in anyone I encounter. And it, 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 it is everything. It's everything. And day by day, week by week, I'm learning more about what it means to be his disciple. And it ultimately just means that if I don't give up trying, not in my own strength, but laboring with his strength, um, then the person I become will be my greatest gift to the world. Nothing to do with what I've achieved or what people say about. Wow, thanks, Pete. And uh, if people wanted to know more about uh, Tree of Life, like where would they go? Uh, so we have a website, treeoflife.org.za. And there's also, uh, I've got a website called petebortle.com um, where people, if they want to know more, can order a book I wrote called No Neutral Ground that really tells a lot of this story in greater depth. Um, about the testimonies, the triumphs, the tragedies, and everything else in between. Well, thank you, you know, for your time. And, you know, we have been so inspired uh, just by hanging out with your, you and, and, and your people uh, these days. And, uh, and I know we're leaving uh, just feeling a fullness and, and excitement from just being with you all. Um, I feel like there's a contagion that we've caught. <laughs> and I hope that people that are listening to this, so that you're feeling too.